0: You're listening to Trial by Media, a behind-the-scenes, true-crime podcast. We'll lift the lid on crime and how it's covered, bringing you the biggest cases from Britain's courts. You've read the coverage, here's the full story.
1: You'll be hearing from Carolina Haranskar, Sophia Daru, Cameron Charters, and I'm your host, Charlie Jones. If you like what you hear, then please do subscribe. First, a warning. This episode contains details of murder and sexual assault. Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth, Jack Taylor, Eric Michaels, Henrietta Souks and Jan Mustafa, or MJ to her family, were real people, whose lives were ended in the very worst way. Their story deserves to be told, but this is not their story. This is a story about how their killers were tried by the courts and by the media. Stephen Port killed and raped four gay men in East London. Gerald Matovo killed actor Eric Michaels. Now, both men used grinder to lure their victims and used the Class C drug GHB to kill them. Cameron covered both cases. Start us off with Matovu. What happened?
2: Yeah, well, the Matovu case actually involved two defendants, one being Gerald Matovu and the other, Brandon Dunbar. They were both tried over a series of poisonings using the drug gamma-hyberdox butyrate, which is better known as GHB. Matuvu was convicted of the murder of a, an actor, a father called Eric Michaels, who had been married for 23 years, but had then realised he, he, he was uh, homosexual and began to use dating apps to, to meet people. And on one of these occasions, he met Gerald Matuva, who was later to kill him. Uh, by administering through a needle the, the drug at a very high dosage.
1: H- how much GHB does it take to kill someone?
2: I don't know if there's a, there's a set amount, and having having never administered it, I'm, I'm unsure. unsure <laughs> but um, it is used for a reason which have nothing to do with poisoning, so, so there, there is presumably, therefore, a safe amount, but I don't know what the lethal dosage would be.
1: And so was Matuvo, was he gay?
2: Well, he was, yes, and he was... And, Brandon Dunbar, who he stood trial with, he was in some form of relationship with. Romantic relationship might be rather generous, but um, they they had some sort of connection. After he killed Eric Michaels, he took his possessions, including a MacBook, a mobile phone, American driving license, a passport, uh, various identity cards, which he used to sustain himself uh, by buying food and ordering taxis. But why he actually killed him is it is rather hard to know i suppose one interpretation of it could be that he was a very manipulative person who wanted to exercise control after having having sex then rendering the person unconscious and stealing their property he felt he had total dominion over them another interpretation which was the defense he ran it ran at trial was that he had um no intention to kill him but he was convicted of murder so the jury rejected that. The inference one can draw from his actions is that he was somebody who wanted to have control.
1: And, is that, and the, is that the sense that you were left with when you were watching it?
2: Seeing him in the dark, I had the impression he he wasn't really very interested in, in the gravity of what had happened. He was very self-centered, didn't really understand. I think he really didn't understand why he was actually on trial. I think he genuinely felt that his, there was nothing wrong in his conduct, which is obviously quite chilling.
1: Is that common in defendants, do you find, that they often don't understand the gravity of what they've done?
2: With cases where the crime seems to be more terrible, uh, monstrous almost, there's often bizarrely a sense from the defendant that it isn't a problem at all because in some way they must have justified it to themselves.
1: And was sex involved in any way?
2: Yeah, there was on the um, 26 count indictment, which Matuvu and Dunbar stood trial on. There were counts of assault and mis- uh, by penetration, but I, there wasn't a count of rape, But there was sex in it. But the issue of consent was very murky in the trial.
1: Right, so they thought there'd probably been a sexual assault, but let's just get him on the murder sort of thing.
2: He stood trial for administering the drug to a number of men. But well, he was only tried for the one murder, of course, the other men survived. Um, and I think they felt evidentially it'd be very difficult, as, as rape often is, to cross a threshold in any way. They could convict him of murder.
1: So um, tell us a bit about Eric Michaels and the other men he targeted, if you know about them. I know
2: a little bit about Eric Michaels, not so much about the other men, be- because there were reporting restrictions put in place about their identities as Mr Michaels died there was no anonymity uh, placed upon him he was a father of three as I've mentioned he was married for 23 years, he worked in films and had some roles in quite well known films, one being a James Bond uh, production with Daniel Craig, he used the dating app Grindr but also liked to go out to clubs in uh, Soho uh, such as Q Village and one called Gay Bar at the
1: time of his death, he
2: was... G-A-Y bar, in zero. Yeah, yeah gay bar. Yeah, I think that that's what it's called. That's what my notes have it at. G-A-Y. Is it? Yeah. G-A-Y?
1: Yeah. Is, that not, is it not pronounced gay bar? No, it's pronounced G-A-Y. Oh, I didn't know that. So <laughs> right that's why I'm account. here. And it's an interesting point in the anonymity, though. Obviously, we he's not legally entitled to anonymity because he's dead, but do you think there is anything in favour of keeping him anonymous for the sake of his family is anybody arguing that and do they have any point the sensitivity was
2: was, was obviously something which would for for the for the sons i can't know what they knew of their father but presumably the sensitivity wouldn't be so much about his sexuality rather it would be any sort of stigma around the type of apps he was using but if an anonymity order was put in place, the effect of that would be that somebody had been murdered
1: in secret. No one would know. There was some connection to the another case that you've covered, uh, Stephen Port. What was the yeah. connection? What was the connection? Yeah, between this case and the case of the grinder killer, Stephen Port.
2: Stephen Port also used uh, GHB in Matoovo. It was, it was his drug dealer.
1: Mituvi was Stephen Port's drug dealer.
2: That's how they knew each other and they they exchanged cash and drugs and it was always wondered whether or not Mituvi knew at the time what Stephen Port was going to do with these drugs. The jury were never told of Mituvi's connections with Stephen Port because it seemed to be prejudicial to his his case. There was then after the conviction a sense of perhaps Mituvi was fully aware of, of what Stephen Port was going to do with those drugs. Mituvi's Motivations may not have been so
1: different to to those of Stephen Port's perhaps power and a sense of control. I mean, this is all complete conjecture, but they they could have been sort of criminals, buddies that are planning their different crimes together.
2: They they both had a very precise connection, which was the use of GHB. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was a conversation whereby There's some sort of general remark about how how dangerous is this stuff. I mean, you would have thought that type of thing, it wouldn't be be a leaf of the imagination. One of the main issues arising out of both the Stephen Port murders and the Matuva is how do the police deal with um, murders which involve the use of date drugs and involve um, homosexual men. There is a very thorny issue to be raised in the inquest, which is on the 7th of January.
1: So is there anything in particular that you've heard in these trials that would make you rethink giving dating apps a go for the first time?
2: Yeah, well, my only experience of these dating apps is in the criminal trial, which is often uh, murder and, you know, extremely serious sexual offences. So that has perhaps coloured my interpretation, because, as I say, millions of people use these things and don't commit horrific crimes. This is just in a rather unusual um, position... Which I found myself in my only interaction with them is in the court of law, so, so I don't so I don't find the prospect particularly appealing. But, but I suppose, um, were I to use them, I would hope my uh, common sense would be would stay me clear of too grave a danger. But you know, who knows.
1: In September, Zahid Yunus was found guilty of murdering two women, Henriette Souks and Jan Mustafa, known as MJ. He had kept their bodies in a fridge freezer in his flat for years. So Sophia, tell me about the case.
3: So this very sad case really started in uh, 27 April last year. Police raided a Canningtown flat and made the grim discovery of the bodies of two women stuffed in a small chest freezer. The women were Henrietta Souks, who moved in with Zahid Yunus, the defendant, and was last seen alive in the summer of 2016. Two years later, a woman called Mikan Mustafa, also known as MJ or Jan, was seen visiting Yunus at his flat and disappeared in May that year. There were multiple horrific injuries on both women, which included broken ribs, MJ's sternum and larynx had been crushed and Henriette had dreadful injuries to the head. There had been some electricity shortages in the flat which caused the bodies to start decomposing in the freezer and him effectively abandoning the flat. When he was arrested in a West London address, he told police, it's my house, it's my problem, no one else was involved. Blood and fingerprint evidence of both women's presence was found on the flat. And there were also bags containing Henrietta's letters, diary, and art, as well as a couple of poems from MJ. The prosecutor during the trial, Duncan Penny QC, called Eunice a man with the ability and disposition to manipulate and seek to control vulnerable women, capable of seeking to dominate them, to subject them to his will, and if necessary, of resorting to violence. At the end of this trial, he was jailed for life, with a minimum of 38 years. During the trial, we heard that there was a long range of female victims who had been abused by Eunice. He got together with a 16-year-old when he was still a teenager, and he got her pregnant. The relationship started off passionately, but then he ended up exhibiting extreme jealousy, accusing her of talking to other men, He locked her in a closet. He violently attacked her on an outing and threatened to shove her onto the tracks of a train. And then he called her mother and said she would be lucky to go home. He turned up years later in her flat, grabbed her by the throat, and threatened to take the child to Pakistan. She ended up having to be moved by the council because she was in fear of her life. Years later, when he was, I think, in his late teens or early 20s, he married a 14-year-old girl by tricking her into an Islamic ceremony and then proceeded to abuse her, isolating her, got her pregnant, kept beating her even after she got pregnant. He was briefly jailed for that, but then he was released again and abused her again. Then in 2008, he was jailed for breaking the arm of another 17-year-old girlfriend by twisting it behind her back. He had raped that child many times, had burned her with cigarettes, attacked her with knives and hammer.
1: So just to roll back on the timeline, he married this poor child Mm -hmm. and abused her. And then there was two victims, so it was MJ and Henrietta. So he, he murdered one in 2016. Yes. And the other one?
3: In 2018. So he murdered Henrietta. He stuffed her body in a freezer. And then he kept her body in his flat that whole time. We don't know that much about MJ, but at some point he murdered her as well and also put her body in the freezer.
1: And when was he arrested? When were these women let out of the freezer?
3: In April last year.
1: So Henrietta was in the fridge for, what, four years?
3: Uh, Three years, but yes.
1: And how does that go unnoticed? How did he get away with it?
3: Well, it's interesting because Henrietta was originally from Hungary and she had moved to the UK While well, she was trafficked into the UK she uh, became addicted to drugs and worked as a sex worker was forced to work as a sex worker and basically nobody reported her missing now MJ was local and she had a very close-knit family who did attend every day of the trial she went missing in May 2018 her family reported her missing but the investigation was an ab- absolute disaster and last I heard was subject to an internal inquiry into how it was conducted and the reason he even got caught it had nothing to do with those women he had been scamming an elderly Christian woman for for years scamming her out of money and she hadn't heard from him for a couple of months and she became concerned so she reported him missing and that's when the police raided his flat and just found the severely decomposing bodies he was originally only Charged with preventing an unlawful burial because the state of the bodies made it such that conducting an autopsy was very, very tricky and establishing cause of death. So it took a while for even the murder charges to come on.
1: So the police ended up coming because this his victim reported him. Mm-hmm. But you said at some point they also visited the flat, but he managed to fool them into thinking there was nothing wrong while the woman was still in the freezer?
3: Yes. So because he groomed and sexually abused the 14-year-old. He was in the sex offenders register. He was only considered a medium risk of reoffending, but as part of that, he had regular contact and visits from the police. And during the trial, we heard the evidence of a policewoman who was in that sex offenders rehabilitation program who had come to check on him. She had found the flat in a fairly disgusting state so he was using a bucket to urinate and defecate on and there was no electricity and i don't want to point any fingers to the police but it sounded like they were quite keen to get out of there as soon as possible so henrietta's body by that point had already been there and the police checked his apartment wow so he went on to murder mj
1: And so now tell us a bit about the trial. So obviously he got found guilty after a trial, but what was his defense?
3: Oh, so it was quite interesting. Because of COVID restrictions for most of the trial, and there was a lot of media interest, we were in a separate room where we were watching it by video, which obviously poses problems because we could not see his outbursts, of which there were many. He fired three legal teams before the trial even started. He shouted at the female judge, While his previous victims, his, should say his surviving girlfriends, were giving evidence, he shouted at them several times, including some very nasty, defamatory things that we are not able to report because the judge rightly put a reporting restriction on. But on the actual day he gave evidence, it was just me and another reporter, and we were able to argue our way into the main courtroom, so I actually saw him give evidence. So I would say he is both the worst and most confident liar I've ever seen. He kept spinning this tale. He had an explanation for anything, everything. He basically claimed, well, first of all, he was very misogynist. He said that Henriette was just a prostitute that he hooked up with a couple of times. And then she was just like hanging out in his flat and he wasn't happy about it. And he called her just a fuck and several other very derogatory things. And I'm I was actually glad that nobody from her family was there to hear that because it was just absolutely disgusting. And then he claimed that one day when he had been out and about and came back and found her dead, just randomly. He claimed he panicked and then contacted some um, shadowy gangster type he knew through, in his words, the drug taking community. And it was the gangster who suggested he buy the freezer and stuff the body there. And then several years later, the gangster showed up with a second body in a supermarket trolley and told him, well, I helped you cover up the accidental death. Now you have to stuff this body in the freezer. So he claimed he didn't know MJ at all, that he had seen her begging around the area, but he didn't personally know her. And when asked why she had called him on his phone, he claimed she was the girlfriend of that shadowy gangster that the prosecutor somewhat mockingly called a real Craze character, and he must have called him. And... Yeah, he, was just, he just had an explanation for everything. When he was asked, why didn't you tell that story to police when you were arrested that, like, listen, guys, I just hit those bodies, but I didn't kill anyone, he said he was given advice from his solicitor to do so. So the prosecutor of Duncan Penny asked him, so you respect legal advice? He said yes. And then he asked him, so how many legal teams have you fired before your, your current barrister, which was quite satisfying. And then he bizarrely snapped at uh, Mr. Penny and claimed that he was staring at him and hovering at him. He was just a deeply pathetic figure. Every day of the trial, he would arrive in those crutches in this um, light gray, almost white suit. An interesting detail is that Eunice, uh, who suffered from Crohn's on one day, couldn't attend because he literally shit his pants. Also, several times he threw a tantrum and would refuse to come into court, and indeed was not in court when the judge was sentencing him. Wow. That is within their rights. I mean, the court has to do everything they can, but generally I find that cowards can't really face justice, and that's ultimately what he was. He was a bully. He was a manipulator. He was a drug addict. He was a user. He was a con man. He would just be a deeply pathetic figure if it wasn't for the death and suffering he's left behind. He's still a deeply pathetic figure, but the harm is real.
1: These, this gangster and this solicitor, is there any evidence that they existed?
3: It's interesting. So yes, the names existed. So they had been arrested under investigation. I don't know what the reasoning of the police, but they were cleared. So my guess is he heard somebody had been arrested. So he decided to spin the whole tale to fit it around the facts but even during his evidence he just kept changing it was just manipulative and clearly the jury saw that and I saw that but also those women had had such tragic lives and it's very easy to see how when you've been abused your whole life and somebody shows you a bit of kindness and some superficial has the gift of the gab how you can get drawn in.
1: In October, a couple were found guilty of poisoning a dancer, Adrian Murphy, having used grinder to get inside his house. Joel Asay and Diana Cristea will both be sentenced for murder next month at the Old Bailey.
0: This case centres around the murder of champion Irish dancer Adrian Murphy. His killers, a young couple, 25-year-old Joel Asay and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Diana Cristea, 18 at the time of offending. He was poisoned at his ex-partner's Riverside apartment in Battersea, where he was staying, with scopolamine.
1: A uh, scopolamine?
0: Scopolamine is a drug, also known as the devil's breath drug, which is popular among robbers and rapists in South America, typically Colombia. It's used to essentially incapacitate a victim, so when you ingest it you'll start feeling breathless, your legs will feel solid and things start going fuzzy and you essentially pass out. So Adrian Murphy was laced with that drug. His post-mortem examination showed traces of scopolamine in his body and a can of Coke police retrieved from his flat also showed that it had traces of scopolamine on that. The prosecution case was that Ossay, along with Christea, who was plotting in the background, administered scopolamine to Adrian Murphy in order to steal his things. So they masterminded this whole plan. They called it Grindr finesse, as their text messages read out in court showed. The way they went about it was through Grinder. they targeted men using Ossay's profile. He'd arranged to meet up with them at their flat, poison them with scopolamine. Then when they were unconscious, he would steal whatever he could find for Cristea to sell. They were out to make easy money a day before Adrian Murphy was killed, the modus operandi was used on another man whose name wasn't given uh, to court for legal reasons. That man came to court and he told how he let someone into his flat called Remy he'd met on Grindr, or say here using an alias. They played PlayStation together, did some drugs, and when the victim tried to initiate sexual activity, or say kissed him back but was unreceptive, the victim gets frustrated and says, I'm going to the toilet. And then when he comes back, Orsay has prepared two drinks. Thinking nothing of it, the man drank his drink and the next thing he's unconscious. He was found by a friend, rushed to hospital and later discovered that his flat had been robbed. A day later, Orsay was picked up by CCTV cameras at the luxury apartment block in Lombard Wharf where Adrian was staying at around half 10. and. Then he takes the lift to the 17th floor. He was later picked up by the same CCTV, leaving the flat with a Louis Vuitton holdall That was Adrian Murphy's and his things were inside. Where was Adrian Murphy? He was found lying face down motionless on a bed by his ex-partner, Simon Keim, who had been away on holiday in Portugal. And at that point, Adrian had been dead for four days. Meanwhile, Ossay and Cristea had gone on a spending spree using both men's cards. They'd even tried to buy diamonds. They were unsuccessful. Christea took pictures of the men's belongings and listed them online for sale. They were described by the prosecution as a pair of ruthless grifters.
1: And so when did this all happen?
0: This all happened last year, so 2019.
1: And what was their defence? They denied it, I assume.
0: Yeah, so Christea, they denied it. So Christea never gave evidence. She chose not to, which is her right. So that means the defence case rested heavily on Ossay's account. They both, of course, denied murder, as I said, but pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. The defence case was that Ossay was looking to make money and used Grindr to hook up with men to get paid for sexual services. So how did they justify the fraud and theft charges? Ossay claimed the first man didn't have any money to pay him after sex, so allegedly the victim agreed to just hand over his PlayStation, his Amazon Alexa, and basically just you know make up for it with, with, um, with his possessions. Orsay's so lawyer, Simon Russell Flint, really laboured that point uh, during cross-examination. The victim was absolutely gobsmacked. He was like, I didn't make the story up um, of being drugged and robbed, it happened. And the barrister even said to him, you were not collapsed, you saw him to the door, gave him the items which were his payment. You'd taken more drugs than you told the jury, and uh, you passed out later from that. Later, i say, admitted that he wanted to knock them out and steal their things, as he said. But he claimed Christea, who was following the events closely, calling him throughout the evening, texting him things like, make sure you get the, the Wi-Fi there when you arrive so you can keep up the comms. Worst case scenario, I've got £250 in PayPal, stuff like that. He claims she had no idea about the whole thing. And then in the biggest twist of all, at the end of his evidence-giving, he essentially turned around and told the jury, I've told you a pack of lies. Wow. And that's what uh, he left them with before they retired to consider their verdict.
1: And just before we get on to what the verdict was or why he did that, can I just clarify? So part of Ossie's, at least, defence at first was that he was gay. Were they... Was him and Chris Day, were they a couple?
0: Yeah, so he claimed that he wasn't gay, but he was using Grindr to target men, but that he was doing it in exchange for sexual services, which these guys knew. say claimed that that's what it was all about, him getting paid for sexual services, and uh, when the unnamed victim, the guy that narrowly survived, did not pay him, they both agreed that he would take his things.
1: Right, so he was claiming to be straight, but he um worked in gay sex to try and make money was his initial claim. And him and Christy are a couple? Yes. Right, okay. So so why why do you think he changed his mind?
0: I think by the time they went on to Adrian Murphy, he could no longer say that Adrian Murphy also had no money to pay him for his sexual services. But he still maintained Christy had no idea about that.
1: So he said, I've told you a pack of lies, I'm guilty but Christy is innocent. Essentially. Wow, so on to the verdict then. I'm guessing it was no surprise that it was a guilty
0: one. It was a guilty verdict, yes, for both. This was a very tense and long verdict. There were 12 charges to be read. Both were jointly charged, so 24 charges to be read. And on top of that, they'd also drafted these alternative charges for every count, which they'd pleaded to. So the alternative charges, I I think this was put through by the defence, carried a, a a lesser sentence, instead of theft, say, it was like handling stolen goods, and Cristea had pleaded guilty to to that. But they were still convicted of the original charges. Right, Um, so
1: the prosecution said, you've committed murder, and they said, no, we've committed manslaughter, and they were, the jury decided, looked at both sets of charges and decided they were guilty of the most serious ones, both of them, for all of it. Yes, exactly.
0: Everyone was just looking down, the room was silent, uh, charge after charge being read, coming back guilty. By count three, Christea was just weeping in the dock and that's all you could hear.
1: And this is really interesting because it's been in the news quite a lot recently that there's something like half of all women who are convicted for murder under this joint enterprise rule weren't even at the scene and apparently nine in ten of these women had engaged in no violence at all. Do you think it's fair they both went down for it with the maximum?
0: Fair? I I mean, I was quite surprised. I thought she'd get manslaughter. She even got convicted of administering poison when she wasn't physically there. But you have to remember that she, as the prosecution said, was in with it as deep as I say was. Mobile phone evidence shows that she called him from the moment he got in the cab to headed to Adrian Murphy's flat. She called him when he arrived, whilst he was there, texted him throughout, you know, booked the cabs. She essentially would have had a rolling commentary on what was going on. Do I think she intended to kill Adrian Murphy? I think their intention was to make easy money, not to kill. She was shocked when she learned what happened to Adrian Murphy. When the police began calling numbers on Adrian Murphy's phone to figure out who he'd been in contact with last, they reached out to Diana Cristea's phone. This is what the officer told the court. When she informed her that Adrian Murphy had died, she let out a huge gasp and seemed shocked. So one could look at that and think, she didn't intend to kill him. Should she get a life sentence? On count four, they were both charged with murder. And in law, murder is the deliberate, so not accidental, and unlawful, so say, you know, not in self-defence, killing of another. With intention to kill or cause really serious harm. And that is the key. The prosecution acknowledged that none of them intended to kill, no one intended that anyone should die, but they had to prove that both of them intended to cause really serious harm. Intentionally drugging someone and rendering them deeply unconscious whilst, say, runs around and grabs their things, you could argue is causing someone really serious harm. But, you know, no one expected the result, not even the police or Adrian Murphy's family.
1: Do you say you got a sense of the family's reaction to Chris conviction?
0: Yeah, I spoke to the dad after the verdict. He, he bought everyone a round of coffee. He was like, this is a celebration. Um, oh. But even he didn't expect Christea to go down for everything. But of course, they were happy with the result um, and justice was served.
1: And that's it for this episode. You've heard from Carolina Haranskar, who also produced the episode, Sophia Derue, and Cameron Charters. If you liked or were horrified by this episode, please subscribe, leave us a rating, shoot us a review, send us a love letter, transfer us your life savings. I'm your host, Charlie Jones. See you next time.